This is Making Babies, a podcast all about pregnancy. Pregnancy can be such a confusing and anxious time when parents are completely focused on the health of the mother and baby. There are so many questions and so much to learn about all the recommendations and current trends in pregnancy and childbirth. We hope this podcast can offer some answers in a scientific and medically accurate way and along the way provide some really interesting conversations. I'm Blythe Bernhard, medical reporter at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and I'm in my second pregnancy. So I share your curiosity and excitement about this incredible journey that is making babies. Today we are talking about innovations and limitations of infertility treatments, including fascinating new developments with embryos created from three parents. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Sherman Silber, director of the Infertility Center of St. Louis at St. Luke's Hospital. He is a pioneer and international expert in infertility research and treatment. Welcome, Dr. Silver, and thanks for joining us. Thanks. I'm glad to be with you, Blythe. Well, I, uh, first of all, I asked some of our listeners for their questions about fertility treatments, and most of them all boil down to these two issues, uh, success rates and cost. I'm sure those are the most common questions you hear, too. Right. Well, you know, um, we solve that problem with the same approach. Uh, everybody should have a great laboratory with perfect conditions so that the embryo, the eggs are all treated perfectly and we have the highest pregnancy rate per egg. I mean, the laboratory is crucial for that. And, and that's just a, a basic must. But uh, one thing we can do is we can make the pregnancy rates lower. I'm joking a little bit by overstimulating with too many drugs, get uh, poor quality eggs, and in the same time, increase the cost. So I think the simple improvement right now, uh, and everybody's become aware of this in the last year or so, and we've been doing it for 15 years, is to reduce the amount of stimulation so we get better quality eggs, uh, we get a smaller number of better quality eggs, and so instead of getting 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 eggs by stimulating with lots of drugs, which the drug companies would love us to do, instead of that, we just give you a very mild stimulation. We have perfect lab conditions, and we might get three eggs and three beautiful embryos from those three eggs instead of getting three embryos from 15 eggs. And uh, so we have a much higher pregnancy rate per egg, and it's a, it's a much lower cost at the same time. So we can reduce the cost at the same time that we improve the pregnancy rate by not lowering the pregnancy rate by incorrectly giving too much drug. So do you think there's a ceiling to these success rates? I mean, what is an average success rate? I know it's going to vary wildly by lab, but... Do you think there is a limit, or can can we keep seeing improvements to these success rates? Well, I th- I th- yeah, I understand your question. First, the uh, pregnancy rate is directly related to the age of the woman and the age of her eggs, and it's related to the number of eggs she was born with or her ovarian reserve or... Uh, we can determine this with blood tests or even better with ultrasound to just know what her follicle count is. So those are the two things that really limit it. Sperm hardly limits it anymore because we were the ones to develop this procedure called ICSI about 20 years ago, which means that we inject the sperm into the egg. And so we've solved uh, almost all the male infertility problems, not quite all, but certainly 99% of them uh, by uh, IVF injecting the sperm. It's been quite a uh, 
remarkable uh, revolution in the whole field, male infertility, isn't that crucial anymore. We can treat that. Uh, but the limiting factors of the age of the woman and the number of eggs she was um, uh, originally born with or that she has. So that determines the pregnancy rate. So the pregnancy rate per egg in a young woman in her early 20s, we've worked out, uh, should be about uh, 26% per egg. So if you get three eggs, uh, you can count on a pregnancy rate at that particular cycle, certainly of more than 60%. Um, but uh, as, the, as the age uh, increases, by the time you're 42, the pregnancy rate per egg is not 26%. The pregnancy rate per egg is 4%. So we solve that by, again, doing many IVF so we don't lower the pregnancy rate below those natural limits. Those are the upper limits that you can get per human eggs. And uh, so you can see that we have extremely high pregnancy rates uh, as long as we don't uh, ruin the eggs by stimulating too much. And we've got to, we can't just brag about pregnancy rates because in one center versus another, because if you take on older patients and lower numbers of eggs, and uh, then you're going to have a lower pregnancy rate. But uh, the uh, uh, chance of getting pregnant all, all all around is is very high if we can do minimal stimulation and if we have a perfect laboratory. So I hope that answers that there is a definite upper limit to any human egg, but we can lower that pregnancy rate if we treat the egg incorrectly. Yeah, I was just reading an essay yesterday by a woman who said she was, well, she was in San Francisco, but she had uh, been, you know, denied appointments at a bunch of clinics, and she was in her early 40s and had had previous IVF failures and she was getting the impression that clinics were turning her down to you know because she would bring down their success rates I mean do you think that's well, you're absolutely happening? right you know there was a law passed in 1992 the Wyden bill uh, that required reporting of uh, specific clinic results to the government to CDC and uh, so we follow that, of course, and that law stated that this should not be used for uh, a comparative marketing of one IVF center over another because some centers might take on more difficult cases. But no one pays any attention to that fine print, and most IVF centers incorrectly and, frankly, illegally, although it's never prosecuted, illegally use uh, this reporting for marketing. So what they do is they'll turn down women that have low ovarian reserve or who are older who have a chance of getting pregnant, but they'll turn them down uh, so because they don't want to lower their reportable pregnancy rates and they want to be able to market uh, higher pregnancy rates than they really should be getting. So, for example, um, we'll take patients that are 44 years old with a low number of eggs and and, you know, we might only have a 30 or 40% pregnancy rate with that group. Uh, but if we eliminated them, then that would raise our pregnancy rate to 70% or 80%. So you can select uh, cases uh, out to artificially elevate your pregnancy rates. And it's very unfair, but uh, uh, that's, the, that's what happens. So... Um, uh, our view is with older women who have uh, who are in a lower category because of their eggs being older, they can still get pretty good pregnancy rates, uh, but it won't be as high as a 25-year-old or a 32-year-old or a 37-year-old. 
All right. So back to that other problem, main problem or concern, which is the cost. Um, yes. We know that most states, including Missouri, do not require insurance plans to cover all fertility treatments. Why do you think this isn't a priority for states? Well, it, it's kind of uh, stupid on the insurance company's part uh, because uh, the fact that people have to pay out of their pocket and don't have insurance coverage means that uh, clinics uh, will often transfer too many embryos uh, to artificially, well, not only artificially elevate their pregnancy rates, but really uh, to um, uh, the patient wants that because they want to have a higher pregnancy rate uh, per treatment cycle. And that means they could have triplets or quadruplets, which would uh, be maybe a half a million dollar delivery of premature babies kept in a ICU, and uh, the cost of the insurance company would just be enormous because they're going to cover the delivery and the cost of uh, complicated pediatric care for premature babies. Uh, And yet the cost of doing IVF, if they covered it, and the women were willing to then have just a single embryo transfer because the insurance company is paying for it, uh, would be a much, much safer pregnancy. So uh, I think it's kind of stupid that insurance companies don't cover it. And uh, the really intelligent uh, um, uh, companies such as Google and Amazon and Facebook and Apple, I mean, they cover infertility. They cover IVF for their employees. But most companies don't, and most of their insurance plans don't, unless the state law requires it. And as you know, Missouri state law will never require it. And so Missouri patients... uh, really are all paying out of their pockets. So all we can do about this as physicians, I think, is uh, figure out how to reduce the cost, and uh, and that's what we try to do with um, mini-IVF. So uh, do you think that the cost uh, raises ethical questions? Are we, in effect, limiting fertility treatments to a more privileged class of people? No question about that. You, you really hit the nail on the head there. Um, uh, some people, of course, who don't have very much uh, money will save up for years or borrow from their parents to have IVF. And uh, other couples just give up and say, we can't possibly go this route, and they, they wind up childless. Uh, and uh, there's another problem, is that the infertility epidemic we're in right now, which is worldwide, is really caused because of a changing society in which... Uh, we don't really try to have children until we're in our 30s or um, until we're older. And two generations ago, uh, people would have all their kids by age 26, and uh, and then they'd be worried about birth control after that. That was just two generations ago, uh, 60 years ago. But now, uh, with all the opportunities for an extended lifespan and education uh, and complex jobs, uh, and the difficulty of finding the right partner, actually, in the modern era means that people aren't really trying to have a baby until they're older. And you don't realize that from your late teens until your early 30s, you go from a 0.2% chance of being infertile to a 20% chance of being infertile. And so, frankly, I think the uh, solution would be to provide egg freezing to young women who know they can't have babies for a long time because of life plans, but that isn't covered either, and that's, uh, it could be very expensive to do that for everyone. But 
that would be one solution uh, to the problem, and it'd be less expensive than going through IVF cycles when they're 40 years old. So, yeah, we're we're creating a a privileged class uh, with uh, not paying for IVF, and uh, it's economically a little silly because it's encouraging transfer of too many embryos, which results in uh, pregnancies that are very high-cost pregnancies that actually we are paying for as a society. So it doesn't make any sense, and, you know, I've talked to politicians uh, in every way. You can't imagine how active I've been, and it's really... It's really hard to uh, to break this resistance. That's so interesting. Um, I, w- I wanted to talk a little bit about a couple things that have been in the news a lot. First, the um, really fascinating phenomenon of three parent embryos. So this is where an embryo is manipulated to contain DNA from one father and two mothers. And the purpose is to help women who carry certain deadly diseases, mitochondrial diseases, uh, allows them to still pass on their genes to their offspring um, without passing on the disease. So this has been done in Oregon, at least in monkeys. So we have a handful of monkeys uh, created in an Oregon lab who have three biological parents. Um, And they're doing great, apparently. I mean, we don't know long term. Um, the procedure has not been approved for use in humans, at least in the U.S. Um, do you think this could be in our future, and what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm going to probably shock you with this answer. Uh, we've been doing research on this and working on this for two decades, and we actually are doing it with human beings. And, uh, and uh, the... Um, uh, the animal work that preceded this has been very, very, very extensive. Um, we've tried to get um, the FDA to do an I- IND, but they, they don't even have an office. Uh, what do you, what do you no mean by an office? That they say, I mean, we've done legal counseling on this, that there, there's no government office that's even capable of, uh, of analyzing it or giving permission because they don't know what they're doing. And part of it is I can explain your question is a misnomer. These really aren't three parent embryos. That was a sensationalist claim made by someone who first tried to do this uh, back in the 90s, and they just wanted to get newspaper coverage. And uh, it was an embryologist named Jason Barrett. And he's been really criticized for this because it was just a stupid misnomer to create publicity. Here's what it really is. Um, There's only two parents. There is the uh, mother who has mitochondrial disease, which I'll explain in a second, and there's the father who has the sperm. Now, all of the cells in your body, they get their energy from these little little tiny organelles called mitochondria, and and they're the little things inside each one of your cells uh, that uh, uh, actually use oxygen to uh, make your energy. And it's called ATP. You don't have to remember that, but that's where all your energy that allows you to do everything you do comes from the mitochondria. And um, so these mitochondria are uh, just standard, it's 16 genes. Uh, It's a standard little ring of DNA, 16 genes. And it's the same in everybody except 
all of our genomes are a little different in the sense that we have what's called polymorphisms. In other words, there are little differences where you can do DNA fingerprinting and tell who's the father, who's the mother, those sort of differences that don't have any impact, uh, don't have any gene coding effect on the baby whatsoever. So there will always be those differences between you know every every human being, and that's fingerprinting. And there are going to be some differences in the mitochondrial DNA, but in terms of coding DNA that actually makes your energy, it's all the same in everyone. But there are some women that have these mitochondrial diseases where they have a mutation, like it's called Lay syndrome is a common one. They have a mutation in their mitochondrial DNA so they don't make energy right. And uh, and they may be asymptomatic, but then their child can have a greater percentage of uh, non-functioning mitochondria, and then their child suffers awful deaths or uh, miscarriage, or they live till they're three or four years old and no energy, and it's it's just a terrible death for these little children. And uh, so we're actually the leaders in this field, and um, and and we're and I expect there'll be. I can't say anything else right now, but uh, I expect there'll be very, very good results coming out of this in humans. And what you do just is you take the nucleus from the mother, her DNA, and you inject it into a nucleated egg from a normal donor. It's just an egg without any nucleus in it. There's nothing there but mitochondria. And then you wind up getting a normal uh, baby out of this. And so we call it Jason Barrett called it three genomes and created a huge amount of uh, riotous publicity over the last two decades, and he never had any success because he didn't know what he was doing anyway. But but there are really good scientists, including us, that are leaders in this. And uh, and in Oregon, working on the monkeys, and I'm telling you it's ready for human work, and uh, we anticipate uh, good success. But it's not really... A, a three-parent uh, family, it's uh, or a child. It's uh, it's just borrowing the energy particles, you might call them, from a healthy woman, and allowing the mother to have a child that's healthy rather than have this uh, this disease of the mitochondria. Okay. So, well, thanks for clearing that up. So, you, would the child though ha- share some characteristics of the the healthy mother? The the donor? Uh, okay, no, no, let me explain. The mother is the mother who is uh, asymptomatic carrier of the... She doesn't have enough mutations in her mitochondrial DNA to make her sick. I mean, she might have 25%, but she's a carrier. So, no, the mother is the mother, and uh, it's her nucleus, and she is the mother. So the donor has just donated uh, mitochondria. Uh now the mitochondria are are run by sixteen are are controlled by sixteen standard genes. That's how they work. That's how everything works. But they're no different than your genes or anybody else's genes for making energy. They they don't. The baby is strictly uh, the child of uh, the mother who whose nucleus it came from, and the donor is just donating mitochondria. She's not really donating any kind of a genome. So the baby has no characteristics of that donor at all. Okay, okay. Um, so are you saying that there have been human embryos created in this way? Well, um, for sure. But the thing is, 
be, until we uh, get a scientific uh, publication, I can't give you any more details on that other than what I just said. Okay. Are there, uh, but there, but well, are I'll there be able any... to give you details on this probably in the next few months. Okay. We will look forward to that. Um, and I, quickly, I wanted to talk about uterus transplants. Um, right. We know the first one was performed earlier this year at the Cleveland Clinic, and unfortunately, um, the transplant failed. Um, and so, but what do you see? Do you think? Do you see a future for uterus transplants? Is that something that could happen here? Um, can we talk? Well, you know, it's been done successfully in Sweden, and they have five babies from it. Uh, but I don't really see a serious future for it, and I will tell you why. In the United States, we have over 20,000 women that have had babies that love being pregnant but don't want to have any more babies. And they're gestational surrogates, and it's totally legal, and the laws completely protect uh, the intended parents. And so for a woman that has no uterus, um, We've, we have so many patients with either no uterus or destroyed uterus, and uh, we find them a gestational surrogate, or they find their own gestational surrogate who could be a good friend, doesn't have to be related, could be her mother even, it could be her, a sister, or just a friend. They don't have to be related uh, because uh, the uh, endometrium, the uterine lining, is uh, an immune privilege site, so you don't have to worry about rejection at all. And so we can just take uh, the mother's eggs and the um, father's uh, uh, sperm and make embryos and put them in the gestational surrogate, and then she carries the baby for them and delivers the baby uh, normally at term. So it's a so much safer thing to do uh, than a uterine transplant. Uh, tiny little arteries where you can have a reduced blood supply, you can get all kinds of infections. You have to put them on immunosuppression, uh, and particularly the approach of getting cadaver uteruses because it's uh, hard to get a uterine donor. Uh, so unlike Sweden, I, I think in the U.S., uh, I don't think there's any point in it, frankly, because we have an abundance of gestational characters and, uh, carriers, and it's just so much safer. If anybody were to do a uterine transplant in the United States, you'd think it would be us because we've had so much experience with microsurgery and ovary transplants. and I mean, we, I mean we're really considered the masters and the originators of these microsurgical um, procedures for uh, infertility. Uh, but as I've evaluated it, I just uh, think it's putting a woman through too much, uh, with too much risk, uh, and danger of an intra-abdominal catastrophe occurring when they're pregnant or, or, or reject, uh, that if your laws allow and protect gestational surrogacy. Now, in Europe, gestational in most of the world, gestational surrogacy is either not allowed or the, um, uh, the rights of the intended parents just aren't protected, and so it's just not popular. But in the U.S., we absolutely do not have that problem. Uh, the rights of the uh, intended parents are protected, and we have a huge number of people willing to do it. And and, the, and you only even have to tap into that resource if the uh, infertile couples don't have a friend or a sister or a mother who's willing to carry the baby for them, and often they do. Right. Okay, well, th- thank you so much for your, for your time today. It's been a really interesting conversation, Dr. Silber. Okay, well, that's, uh, it's my pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate your uh, bringing up these new controversial things so we can discuss it. <laughs> 
Well, you can find this and other episodes of Inside the Post-Dispatch at stltoday.com slash podcasts or by searching Post-Dispatch in the iTunes Store or Google Play Music. And while you're there, be sure to check out the best podcast in baseball with Derek Gould and Benjamin Hockman.